Today I come to the platform carrying a stick. Sticks, uh, you know, uh, they can bend a little bit if you uh, apply pressure in the right place over the right time. They break. Just like you and I. This morning we begin a a series, a six-week series, uh, called The Resilient Life. And I can't help as we begin, I can't help but wonder, how many of you are at a place where you're being bent? How many of you, even in a deeper way, are at a place where pressure applied at the right place over time has put you at a breaking point? What's going to happen? If we live, we lose. Virtually every Sunday I stand up here. I'm not just a a preacher. It's not just the oratory thing. That's a part of my job. In fact, in some ways, that's the easier part. But there's the role of being a pastor, of being a shepherd. And I know some of you, and I know some of your stories. I know a little bit about some of your stories And I know I can stand up here on any given Sunday, and when I look out and study a sea of faces before me, I know some of you ain't studying me, and you're on about you know on your way to sleep right now. And I just don't I don't look at you; I ignore you. (laughs) But I see some of you, and I look for the most engaging faces because that helps me. But then I look, and I I see some. I, I know the story of a young man who sits in the middle, and he's been in rehab for the third time. The story of the woman whose dad is doing a slow fade into Alzheimer's. The couple trying to work it out. They've been trying to work it out for a long time. They sit in different places of the sanctuary. And I know a little bit about the space that's between them. We lose. To live is to lose. It could be the loss of a job, of, home, of a home, of your health. Life gets under our skin, and it can even cause us to the point of having a loss of hope. And what we've done in the church today, in the middle of our modern conveniences and in some ways our lavish, easy, comfortable lifestyles, we've sort of sanitized the message of the Bible. We've cleaned it up a good bit. And we feel like there's just something wrong with saying to other people, I'm being bended, and it hurts. I'm at a point where the pressure, I just, I, I don't know. I'm at a point where, well, it's, you could call it a breaking point. This series is for all of us because we're all alive. We all have life and to live is to lose. So for some of us over these weeks, you're pointing to something right now. Maybe for some of you, it's just something recently that you've been through or you're trying to get through. If everything's clicking, Everything's going your way. There's always the looming specter of what could be next. And when life bends you, when when it's close to breaking you, it's easy to do what? It's easy to complain. How many of you, just raise raise a hand. It's easy for you at times to complain. Are Are you that? Yeah. Here's what I love. In, in, in the Bible, there's two forms of complaint. They both start with G, so this will be easy for you to remember if you refuse to take notes today. The first is what the Bible calls groaning. 
groaning. That's something deep from within, from the bowels. Help me if you will back here. Here are a few examples in Scripture. I could do so many, but we don't have time. The Israelites groaned. Where were they when they were groaning? In the desert, right? In the wilderness. For how long? 40 years. Some of you, you've been groaning for 40 years. The Israelites groaned. Look, God heard about the groaning, and he was concerned. Next. My soul, this is from the Psalms. By the way, the first passage is in Exodus 2. This is from Psalm 6.6. My soul is in deep anguish. I am worn out from what? From my groaning. There's a book in the Old Testament. It's called Lamentations. Do you, do you ever read it, ever heard about it? It's a book about groaning. Here's what it says. Look at the depth of this. Arise and groan in the night. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. It's a command. Arise and groan. How many of you did that this morning? We do that when we spring forward, right? Fall back a little different. Yeah. Arise and groan. Look what it says in the next passage about groaning. This is in Romans chapter 8. Y'all know how I love Romans chapter 8? For we know that the whole creation has been what? Has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And now, and I'm sorry, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, he's saying, hey, we've been redeemed, we've been adopted, but we're still living in this world. And this world to live is to, is to lose. And the loss that you experience, you just want a better life. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we... It's coming. For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here we go. For likewise the Spirit... Let me say this. God is a groaner. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Jesus stood before the crowd once. He preached the most famous sermon ever. And he said to people who were groaning, who were longing for better life, who were looking for happiness, what did he do? He met them right where they are. He preached a topical sermon. And he said, blessed are... Dot, dot, dot. Blessed are... Blessed are those who have it all together. Blessed are those who are living the life of their dreams. Blessed are those who've landed the plum job with the great pay. Blessed are those who married a supermodel wife. No, he says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Arise and groan. The second form of complaint, according to the Bible, now, it, we looked at groaning. The second is grumbling. Now I'm on your toes. The Israelites, look what it said. They grumbled in the tent. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. I went camping with my wife once. She grumbled in the tent, right? This, as I've studied scripture, it's, it's basically saying there's something about isolation. You see, many of them were in individual tents. This is an expression to say, hey, when they were away from the assembly, when they were on their own, they grumbled. Notice what it's tied to. They didn't obey the Lord. No, no, no passage says arise and grumble. 
In fact, Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about how we can stand out as lights amidst a crooked and perverse generation. And he says this, do not grumble. It's coming. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. You see, groaning is commanded. Grumbling is forbidden. What's the difference? In groaning, let me put it to you this way. In groaning, I'm talking to God. In grumbling, I'm talking about God. When I'm groaning, I'm talking to God's face and seeking his face as hard as it might be in the moment. But when I'm grumbling, I'm talking bad about God and life behind his back. When we're at the pressure point, when pressure is being applied, when we realize that to to live is to lose, it's easy for us to complain. And then it's easy for us to question. And we say, God, are you there? Do you realize how many hundreds of passages there are in Scripture where the writer says, God, are you there? You have permission. You have permission to groan that prayer to God. If you haven't, you had not been real. You're missing the authenticity of walking by faith in a world where everything is about sight. We began to wonder, God, are you there? And with these questions, these, com- these complaining and these questions, we, 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 reach, we reach conclusions. Conclusions about God. And when life really applies the pressure, we're at a breaking point, we think this about God. We conclude, God, you're absent. God, you're apathetic. God, you're angry at me. And when life is really hard, and maybe a few of you in a room this size, maybe a few of you are there right now. When you're at a breaking point, it's easy for, a, for you to, to conclude this about yourself, about your situation. I'll never be happy again. Nothing good, nothing good can come from this. There's no point. There's no point in continuing on. For this series, for these six weeks, we're defining resilience. We're kind of plagiarizing, stealing it from the dictionary. But it's the capacity to rebound. It's the ability to overcome. Resiliency is the virtue of going through something very difficult. Listen, church, going through something very difficult and being better on the other side. And we're going to look at this six weeks. We're going to do a a panoramic sweep of a letter written long ago to the church at Corinth. Not the first letter, 1 Corinthians, but the second letter, 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at some of its major dominant themes as it answers this idea, this quest that we're all on to be able to rebound, to have the capacity to overcome, to get through something difficult, to endure something very hard, and to be better on the other side. Have Have you looked at life? Have you looked at your own life people you know or you've read inspiring biographies and accounts of people and you wonder how some people can go through similar situations and some can't bounce back some can't overcome some don't have the ability to rebound some don't make it through better but some do some do 
This letter, 2 Corinthians, is written by a man named Paul. If you've been in church, you know that. But before Paul was Paul, do you know who Paul was? Do you know his name? Say it if you know it. Paul, before Paul was Paul, Paul was? Paul, good, class. Paul was Saul. Where was he from? Saul of? Oh, extra credit there. Saul of Tarsus. That's good. Not going to get you into heaven necessarily, but that's good. <laughs> there's, there's Paul, but before Paul, there's Saul of Tarsus. And do you know that... It, he was a persecutor of Christians. When we first meet Saul of Tarsus, he's at the feet of Stephen and he's conspiring to kill this Christian because he is a Christian, because he's spreading a message contrary to the kingdom for which he knows. And by the way, just quickly about Paul. Some of us, we read that passage in Acts. It says that these were untrained, uneducated men, but they were bold. They had been with Jesus. Sometimes it's easy to look at that passage and go, oh, that God just uses the uneducated. God just uses the non-leader types. And it is good to know that God chooses to use the uneducated, the non-leader types. But can I tell you, Paul, my brother, was educated. And God used him in, an, in a great way. He was elite. He was a part of the intelligentsia. He was an intellectual leader. The guy was well-studied and well-versed, and God used him greatly. But he felt threatened, and he was conspiring to kill Christians. And we see in Acts chapter 9 a very dramatic turnaround. And Saul becomes Paul. We'll get there in just a second. But Paul becomes, I'm sorry, Saul becomes Paul. And we see him, when we meet him in 2 Corinthians, by the time we get to this letter in a minute, he's beaten up. He's deeply discouraged. And he's scared. Now what would you say to Paul if you ran into him? You'd probably say, man, the grace of God, you were like conspiring to kill people. And God plucked you out and is using you. Man, that makes me feel good about my sins of gossip and stuff, right? My, my lesser sins. Whew, thank God. What would you say if you saw Paul and you knew that he was beaten up and deeply discouraged and scared, deeply scared down to the bone? What would you say to Paul? Would you say, hey, Paul, listen, all things work together for good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And Paul would say, yeah, I wrote that. Would you say, hey, Paul, look, hey, you seem anxious. Look, do nothing. Don't do anything by, you know, by being anxious, but do, in everything, pray. Be anxious about nothing. Pray about everything. And the peace of God, it'll guard your hearts. The peace of God through Christ, it'll guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Think on the things that are lovely, noble, worthy, and of good report. That's it, Paul. And Paul would say, yeah, I wrote that too. Paul was beaten up. What happened when we get to 2 Corinthians? You see, it, not, it wasn't so much what happened in Corinth as what had happened before Corinth. As the church explodes outside of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and what was known at the time as the uttermost parts. It was like a wildfire running rampant, and people were their lives were being changed and the establishment, the apple cart was getting upset and turned over. In fact, there's a passage in Acts that says that they were turning the world upside down. Christianity should never be lame. It should never be benign. It should never be mild and meek. Christianity is a movement. It is a force. It's a love revolution and it changes things. And the status quo is pushed over. But before Corinth, there was Philippi. Now, I grew up in a church where 
hopefully none of you say this here at Fawner Church, but I didn't, when I was a little boy, I didn't really pay much attention to the preacher. And I would sit down front because my parents made me sit down front. And I would just kind of glance at the Bible. And I would go to the maps of the Bible, the journeys, the first, second, and third missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Long before I got to high school and college, long before I came to, really came to faith in Jesus, long before I ever attended a theology school, I knew a little bit about the geography of the maps because that preacher was that boring. Did I just say that? Anyway... I knew a little bit about the maps, and Paul, just to briefly tell you, I don't have any pictures, but to tell you a little bit, Paul was, uh, early on, was in a city called Philippi. And in Philippi, he connected with some brothers. If you're going to be a part of the Jesus movement, you're going to need to connect with brothers and sisters. You'll need to be arm-in-arm with some people. That's how God works. He works in teams where two or three are gathered. He chooses to use us and puts people next to us. And with him in Philippi, There was Silas. There was Timothy. And in Philippi, the scripture tells us in Acts that Paul was accused. He was arrested, he and his brothers, and they were flogged. Now, we won't get too graphic here, but to to be flogged, I don't know if you know much about flogging. It means to be whipped. It means that your, 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 your clothes are taken off and you're laid over something and there are whips or sometimes chains and you're hit over and over repeatedly on the back, and that's what happened to Paul in Philippi. And Paul moves on to a city called Thessalonica, where again he was falsely accused in this city. And they connected there with a man named Jason. Jason is mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 18, and he's also mentioned later in Romans 16, when Paul is going back to thank some people that have helped him further the gospel. He mentions Jason, and Jason gave Paul, Silas, and possibly Timothy refuge in his home. He hosted them. And Paul was in such danger in Thessalonica, Jason covered for him and had to go before the city magistrates for a legal trial. And he was there in Paul and his crew snuck out of town because when your life is at stake, when you're living in that kind of danger, what do you do? You get out of Dodge. So Paul from there moves from Philippi uh, to Thessalonica. And then he goes to a community called Berea. In Acts chapter 17, it gives us the account of Berea. One of my favorite passages, it's kind of tucked away, but in Acts 17, 11, it talks about the church. See, when Paul would go somewhere, he would always go first to the city center which says something about Christians. Why, why do we retreat so much? Let's be involved winsomely, respectfully, gently. Let's be involved magnetically in the public arena. Paul would go to the, to the center of the city. He would go to the Jewish synagogues. And it says in Acts 17, 11 about the Berean believers, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Yeah, Paul, they were gunning for your life. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Don't just believe the guy. Like, go back. You see, Paul would go into the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, and he would use their scriptures to point to the Messiah. That was his ministry, very heartfelt ministry, a very intellectual, very robust ministry. But what happened? He was well-received in Berea. Good, great, Paul, you found a home. Plant here. Raise a family. But what happened in Berea? The folks from Thessalonica that were out for his life came to Berea. He's on the road. He's snuck out of town again to the coast, and he ends up in Corinth where we see him now. And in Corinth, Corinth was a great commercial city. 
It was a harbor city. There was an isthmus that was on the, around the Polyponnesian Peninsula. You've got uh, Athens to the north. You've got a city called Sparta to the south. You've got the Aegean Sea that's making the news right now with refugees fleeing Syria. You have the Adriatic Sea, the Ionian Sea. All that to say Corinth was becoming more and more a really uh, powerful city, a city of great influence. It was a trade mecca. You, you needed Corinth. The world at that time to export goods, the world needed Corinth. And Athens was becoming less and less important. Athens was sort of a, a city of the past with its famous uh, philosophers. Athens produced Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, right? It had a great culture. Uh, it was the birthplace of democracy. But Athens was a city of the past. Corinth had a skyline. It had a harbor and a port. It was growing in its importance. And look what it says now. Let's put that up. Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 11 says the following. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Paul's like, all right, Lord, been running this game for a while now. Plenty of people attacking me. Remember the mob? Remember the riot? Remember the trial? Remember when they accused us of treason because we were talking about King Jesus and they were talking about Caesar Augustus? Remember that? And you're telling me no one will attack you or harm you. And God is saying, hey, you're going to still know the pressures of ministry. That's not going to go away. In fact, you're going to know this thing called a thorn in the flesh. But while you're in Corinth, I'm going to protect you from physical harm. Look at the great promise. For I have many in this city who are my people. God is saying, I'm doing something here. You're going to need to stay. I'm doing something here. And he stayed for 18 months, a year and six months, teaching the word of God to them. God opened a door in Corinth. You'll see as you read Acts and First and Second Corinthians, there's a there's an area of the world mentioned at the time called Asia. And it's important for you to know, if you don't know this already, that Asia is not the continent of Asia. It's not China, Asia. It's the Roman Empire, Asia. And the capital of Asia was a city called Ephesus. And the capital of the Greek world was this city of Corinth. Now, Corinth at one point in history was burned down. But under the leadership of the emperor Caesar Augustus, it was rebuilt and you, that's why today, if you visit that part of the world, a lot of the language of the inscription, what is written is in Latin because Latin is the language of Rome. And in Corinth, Paul still knew a lot of pressure. But God kept his enemies at bay so that he could preach the word. He would get close to the breaking point. In fact, listen to this language of resilience. We'll probably mention this a few times over the next several weeks, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says what? He says, we've been hard-pressed, but we haven't been crushed. We've been perplexed, but we're not in despair. We've been persecuted, but not abandoned. We've been struck down, but not destroyed. The language, the voice of resilience. Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. These things that are happening are momentary light afflictions. But there's something that outweighs all these. It's the eternal weight of glory. I know someone out of state going through one of the most difficult things a human being can go through. She talked to us this past year and said 
she talked about this worship thing on the internet with Shane and Shane and John Piper. And the great preacher John Piper is, is quoting this passage from Paul from 2 Corinthians. Shane and Shane play this song about the eternal weight of glory, about momentary light afflictions. And you just wonder, if I went through something like she has gone through, could I ever say it's momentary light affliction? The flogging, Paul, the threats on your life. I mean, let's think about flogging. How long does it take to recover? If you leave Philippi from the flogging and you go to Thessalonica, I mean, how long does that take to recover physically? How long does it take to recover emotionally? We're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Paul is saying, there's a bending. But there doesn't have to be a breaking. Paul would want to say to you, God can meet you in the broken space. He can give you a resilient life, the ability to overcome, to rebound, to have the virtue to go through something so difficult but to even come out better. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 says this. I'm going to put up this. Yeah, let's do this. Here's Paul saying, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. You see, Paul was longing for help. He had preached the gospel in Corinth, and he wondered how it was going. He wondered if the fruit was sticking, if it was remaining. But he knew that there were some people who were grumbling. They were there. They were questioning his integrity, his authority, and his leadership. He needed his brothers. He needed support. He needed his close companions. And it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just piecing this together for you. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Look, but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without and fear within. You see, for Paul, it wasn't one thing. It was many things. It was a train with boxcar after boxcar of difficulty. And don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you can say that about life for you. Not one thing, just many things. Afflicted at every turn. Fighting was going on without, and he literally meant fighting. He meant some church fighting. He meant some divisions, some fractions, the pressures of ministry. And even the warring factions within. Look what he says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But God, remember, he's looking for Titus. He's looking for his brothers. He's wondering how things are going. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still the more. In this stretch of scripture, the word comforted is used 10, 11, 12 times. And it's used right alongside difficulty and suffering, humiliation, debilitation, great pain and difficulty. And he's saying, this command we're about to look at that I want to leave with you today, that's the heart of this message today, in the beginning of this series, he's saying, what I'm commanding you to do, I have experienced it. 
but I heard, I wondered for it. I wondered when God would bring relief. I wondered if what I did there in Corinth, if it really did matter and if the church was going to flourish because when I was there, it was rocking, but I had to write, I had to write a real stern letter because you know what? When you love someone, when you love a group of people, you have to have difficult conversations. You really do. The, the uh, opinions vary. The emotion is high. The outcome is uncertain. But you walk in and you have to speak the truth because it's the only right thing to do. Now, you speak the truth in love, he would say to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 4.15, because that's the only way it works. But you have to speak the truth. You speak it in love. And there's a lot at stake. And Paul is saying, in the nick of time, he brought my brothers. He brought those companions. And he brought me comfort. In the New International Version of 1 Corinthians 1.8, so I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians 1.8, it says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. There's a book I read years ago. It's called Happiness is a Choice by two doctors, Frank Minerth and Dr. Paul Meyer. And in the book, this book, the, the gist of the book is to help people overcome depression. And in their writings, they talk about the power of language, the importance of free will, the importance of human responsibility. I mean, look at the title, Happiness is a Choice. And they, they're very critical of their patients who come see them about their personal problems and their depression and difficulties and say to them, they use the language of, I can't. And they say there's a more empowering phrase. Instead of I can't, uh, we ought to say I won't. I, I can't get along with my wife. No, I won't get along with my wife. I can't control my spending. No, no, no. I won't control my spending. I can't drive 55. An old song by Sammy Hagar, if you're my age, you're singing it right now. I can't drive 55. I won't drive 55. I can't stop the temptation of keeping up with the Joneses or the Kardashians. No, no, no. I won't keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians. My take is, the way I see it, good book. Very empowering to help people press forward. They say the, the sooner that you realize the power that you possess, the quicker you can get to a cure. It's good stuff. But the gospel, the gospel bids us to see our weakness. The gospel bids us to readily confess, I can't. I can't manage my life. It's a mess. I can't overcome this sin. I can't break through this problem. I can't. One of the best leadership books I've read in the last five or seven years is a book called Strength Finders. Anybody read this book or you're aware of it? Nod your head. That'll help me out. Strength Finders, very good book. Good idea. Our, our staff, I believe, under Jeff's leadership have um, looked and done their spiritual gift testing and probably considered some of this in Strength Finders. It identifies your top five strengths. Our staff, have, they've posted their five top strengths on their office door, actually. Not really. But, you know, I think about that. And I think, you know, it's a good thing to... Know your strengths. What do you bring? What do you bring to the table? What, how can the team benefit for you? 1 Peter 4.10, discover the gift that you have and then use it. 
Use it for others. There, what, there's no greater supreme joy that God would be glorified, others would benefit, and your soul would know the goodness of discovering how God has made you and use it. Strength finders. But when, maybe we need a book called Weakness Finders to help us to learn how to mourn, learn how to live, learn how to come under the gospel, to learn the power of humble submission, of saying two very empowering phrases, I can't. In high school, I was lifting weights one day. Early high school, I was with a friend. He had just benched 200 pounds. I had yet to approach that weight. I was getting a little bit close. I was kind of creeping in on it. I thought, I'm going to do this. He just did it. I'm going to do it. And I waited till everybody left the gym. It's my story, I'll tell it. <laughs> I waited till everybody left the gym and I did what they say you never do. You try to do your maximum bench press with no qualified spotter around. In fact, there was nobody around. And I, I put the weight on, put my hands on the bar. Now, you've already interrupted me once, but in your mind, you're interrupting me now, right? Because you want to finish this story for me, and you want to talk about how I tried, and I got trapped, and I couldn't lift it, and I called out, and some big burly brother came in, some muscle-bound guy, and he sprinted over to me, and he rescued that weight off of me. And because I'm a preacher, I'm probably going to tell you now that that's God. We cry out in our distress, and God hears our cry, and we call unto the Lord, and he runs to us and lifts the weight off of us, right? Is that, is that what you're thinking? That's where I'm going with this story? Well, here's what happened. I laid on the bench. I gripped the bar. The adrenaline kicked in. I thought about my friend who had just lifted this weight. And I looked to the left and I looked to the right. And I got up and I left the gym. <laughs> because I was afraid that I couldn't do it. And I was afraid I would prove to my own self and because, you know, I'm pretty important to me. I mean, I am very, I love you guys, but I am, boy, with me, I am important. I need to feel good about me, right? I need to know that I can do something. I need to know that I'm not weak. And I didn't even try. And that was, that was one exercise at one time at one high school. But I can't help to think to this day. Is that a pattern for me? Are there things that I don't try? And I can't help but ask myself, what blessings have I missed out on? Not because of my capability, but because of my lack of vulnerability. And we'll look at weakness in a few weeks from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and a thorn in the flesh, and what Paul says about God's grace in our weaknesses. We'll look at that down the road. But Paul is saying, I can't. Uh, these pressures, I mean, these pressures are weighing in on us, the applied pressure, it's bending us, it's bending us, and it's just, it just feels like it's breaking us. And I'm under this weight, I'm burdened by this weight. 
But then he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. Indeed, we felt, there had to be some lifting here, right? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, the greatest weightlifter of all, who raises the dead. I don't think it makes you do a cartwheel. I don't think it makes you want to throw a lot of money in the offering plate when it comes around. I don't know if any of those positive things that affects you in that way, but I can tell you, based on what the scripture teaches. Now, there's no why to suffering, but it gives us some ancillary. It gives us some corollaries. It gives us some ideas to get us close. But it says that some things are happening in your life so that you will not rely on yourself. You need the divine spotter and you need some companion spotters who know how to lift the weight. And it takes us to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3, 4, and 5. And it's what I want to leave you with today. And hearts are heavy today. Some of you have lost a dear friend. Many of you in Fondren Church have prayed for Eric Covington. And Eric yesterday, he died. He, he left his earthly tent, this fleshly dwelling. A young man in his 30s struck down with cancer. Married only a few years ago to Abby. And yesterday he passed away. And hearts are heavy. Praying for Abby, for Eric's family, for his brother. And some of you, Will and Molly, Drew and Allie and Amanda and some others, this has been a very special friend to you. They're heavy hearts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for this, this part. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, any, are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Shatter the notion that you will live without loss. When I'm at the buffet, which is not a good idea at my age, when I come to the buffet, what do I do at the buffet? I do what some of you do at the buffet. And it feels good in the moment, but it's rarely good afterwards. But what do you do? At the buffet, you get what you want. You're standing at the buffet. You are the captain of your own fate, the master of your destiny. Whatever they've got out there, it's sprawling, and you give, I want some of this, I want some of that. I'm not gonna name anything because it's too close to lunch. I want some of this, mm, give me some of that, give me some of this, right? And you take, but when, we are, when we're joining in Christ, and when he says here in 2 Corinthians 1, he says in Philippians to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter three, that we, we have fellowship with Christ, fellowship with one another. Now, we gotta walk in the light. We gotta confess our sins to one another. We gotta be real with each other about our stuff. We have to admit our weakness and realize we can't. That's the only way we can really have fellowship with one another. We can't grumble about it. We can't deny our sin. We can't cover it up. We gotta walk into the light. And if we do, we have fellowship with one another. Oh, by the way, we have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. But we don't wanna pick that up at the buffet. We only want what's tasty and top it off with a dessert 
with some whipped cream and a cherry. Only what we want. And Paul is saying there's a fellowship of suffering. And it's what one pastor I admire says this about the fellowship of suffering. Three things. There's a natural bond between those who have suffered deeply and similarly. Those who have suffered are uniquely qualified to comfort those who are suffering. Leave that up. Those who have suffered, circle that, are uniquely qualified to comfort those who are suffering. The job of pastor is one that not many people understand. And at times I'm just laid bare, naked if you will, at the weight of it, the responsibility and the honor of it. And there are times I've shown up to the hospital when someone is close to death, someone's been in an accident or they've been struck down by something. And there's one of you there and only one or two people can go back. And more than a few times I've had someone say, hey, can, can my pastor come with me? What an honor to be ushered into that, that, that tender space in someone's life where so much is at stake and to feel the weight of responsibility to be there for them. But the job of a pastor is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And there are things that for me, just because I'm a pastor, it just comes across as a platitude, as a pat on the back, as an empty, I'm going to pray for you. But when I see you, some of you who've been through something, who have suffered, and you are there for one who is suffering, there is nothing like that. Third idea about the fellowship of suffering before we close, comfort from those who've been comforted is life-giving to those who need comfort. You see, life-giving, not just sympathy, not empathy, but actually giving of life. I know one, it's not an official divorce care program, but I know somebody who's been through it. And like anybody uh, that I know that's been through a divorce, they would not want to go through it again. If, if given another choice, they would not choose that. But they've been through that. And I know one in particular that's using that to be a light to other people. And to talk about the complexity and the difficulty and the pain of it, but to say, you know what, there is life. There is life on the other side. There's life in God's grace and there's joy and there's a morning after the terror of the night. And I want, you to, I want to walk with you. I want you to know it's true. I want you to find what I have found and what I am finding. Know anybody that's lost a child? When someone loses a child, we speak of it, uh, the history of it, like, oh, so-and-so lost their kid five years ago. So-and-so died eight years ago, but that's not how they talk. How many kids do you have? I was with someone weeks ago, three. I have three kids. One is in heaven. And it's there. It's ever present all the time. But I know a few who want to bring light, who want to say, you can get through this. 
Comfort. Comfort those. We have the Father of mercies. We have the God of all comfort. Can I just say it's not the God of my comfort? The way in religion in America today to pack out a church, to sell books, to get popular, is to talk about the God of your comfort. Is to talk about how you can name it and claim it and manipulate God to get what you need. The God of all comfort is not necessarily the God of my comfort. But he'll give you He'll give you what you need. There's a fellowship. Thank God for the fellowship. If you want to learn more about Paul, we're going to look at him over the next several weeks in this letter to Corinth. We're going to crack the book and look at some great passages of Scripture in this writing. But Paul said, we know the fellowship of suffering, and we know the God who can bring comfort. I want to ask that you pray with me now.